So if you open your Bibles now to the book of Hebrews, as we continue to make our way through this book or, or this letter that's written apparently to a group of, we're in chapter 7, to a group of persecuted Jewish Christians who have been um, cast out of their synagogues, they're in Rome, and they're about to be experienced great, greater persecution from Nero, as we learn through history. And so this letter is written to them to help prepare for um, coming difficulties. The reason we, I picked this to preach through is because it magnifies the person and office of Jesus Christ. Um, I didn't realize when we started this, of course, you could, it's going to be said true of any book of the Bible, um, that um, it is preparing us for what is coming ahead. And we don't know what's coming ahead. It, it, it could be quite awful, but in God's economy, the way that God is in control of things, it's going to be very good for the church. It will accomplish Jesus' purpose in building his church, for he has promised that he will build his church. And when he says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, it's not a defensive thing. It's not that it's not our gates that hell is trying to get into, and, and our gates will hold. It's the gates of hell, the gates of Sheol, the gates of the dead, the gates of um, the powers of Satan and demons and the flesh and the world that is arrayed against and stopping the light of God to go forward. As you think of those as a gate, um, something it's to stop the church from getting in. And Jesus says, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against that. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we pressing ourselves into the gates? Are we, are we charging forward? Is that what we're doing? Because as we see the world encroaching on us, we tend to get into a defensive stance, and we also tend to use the weapons of this uh, world as we develop arguments that are oftentimes more worldly than they are spiritual, because we know when we're talking to worldly people, they don't understand spiritual things, and so we want to become more like them. And that's where the enemy gets us. We're not to be like them. We're in the world, but not of the world. And this uh, letter is telling us, especially um, today, in today's passage, we're going to read through verses 17 through 28, and it's talking about, really, we're going to look at who Jesus is, and therefore who we are to be. And if the future is... I don't know what the worst case. I mean, the worst case is it's funny. So I think a worst case is that's kind of the best case, depending on which way you look at it. But you know, the church has always been under persecution. It's just sometimes it doesn't look like it because the world seems to be all, you know, on your side, and that can be a method of the enemy. But then sometimes in some areas, such as China, the persecuted churches has been allowed to function as the government allows it to function. And then if you do anything other than the way the Chinese government um, tells you to do it, then you're cracked down, thrown into prison, um, all these things. And I, I just think we need to be aware. We need to be prepared as a people for whatever comes. It could be great if what comes our way is a great revival of the church and people um, in droves begin to return to the Lord. Um, that will come with its own um, challenges. Too. So we have to be careful of that. Um, but if it's the church gets whittled down greater and greater and the world really comes and cracks down on it, then um, we need to be prepared for that. And so what the letter of 
Hebrews is doing is preparing the church for what? For, for persecution. And so we all go through our own personal problems. But I do believe that we need to be better prepared so that whatever comes, we're able to speak, and we're able to speak with wisdom, and we're able to speak in the Spirit. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 17. Um, and it's kind of in the middle of a thought, but it, 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 it's, it's a good place to start. For it is witnessed of him, speaking of Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. I'm going to interject just a moment, so if you're just joining in the middle of this, you're not quite sure who all this is, so this can make sense. Um, this is in the middle of um, the author of Hebrews talking about the, the Old Testament priesthood called the Aaronic priesthood or Levitical priesthood, same thing. And that those are the ones that did the sacrifices, and they're the ones that did the, the cleansing and all the laws. They made sure all the laws were followed properly. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that priesthood has been set aside. And now we have a new priesthood, and it's Jesus Christ as our high priest. So you had a high priest, and he was over all the other priests, and he did the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement and these sort of things. But now the entire priesthood, including the, and that, high, that, that order of priests, is gone. And the high priest now is Jesus Christ. And so Martin Luther and lots of um, reformers said, therefore, what of priests today? And they said, we have the priesthood of believers. And so that we all have Jesus as our high priest, and we are all, in a sense, priests of God. So as we look at this, Melchizedek was a priest that we saw in the Old Testament that was before the Aaronic priesthood. And it, Jesus, because Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron where Old Testament priests had to come from, he's saying, look, there's this other priest that's a priest of God that didn't come from that, and that's the kind of priest that Jesus is. And then he also quotes from Psalm 110 and says, Jesus, um, uh, God the Father speaks this. He says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So when we talk about the oath, we talk about the promises, this is the oath that God made to Jesus to come, that you will be a priest forever. And that's something that is different. And that's why we have Jesus still as our priest, because he still lives. So we'll start back at 18. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside for the Levitical priest because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. And this is the oath from Psalm 110. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So this is where we see the Old Testament sacrifices were done, and Jesus once for all offers himself as what all those sacrifices pointed to was to him. Verse 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The word of the Lord. And so, you have three things that we see about what makes Christ the high priest. One, he was instituted with a divine oath. That's there in verse 20 through 22. So, you know, Jesus, God says, here's the oath, you're a priest forever. And then, secondly, he's superior priest because of his perpetual priesthood, verses 23 through 24. He doesn't die, or he did die, he's resurrected again, he continues as a priest even now. He's functioning in heaven as a high priest, interceding and praying for us. And then third, he has these personal qualifications that we see that personally also qualified him as a priest, verses 26 through 28. And so what I want us to look at is a couple of things. So just look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. This is a very important part of the introduction. Speaking of, of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1, 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. So just think about that a second. That Jesus being the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. So just, I mean, think about those two things. That Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Now you can almost say, whatever that means. But we saw glory in the Old Testament is usually, if it manifested itself into this realm, it was light. It was, it was, it was bright. It, it couldn't even be looked directly at at times. And, and Jesus Christ is the radiance of this glory. So that brightness of the glory of God is Jesus Christ in some way. And then he's the exact imprint of his nature. So if you want to know what God the Father is like in a, in a terrible error is to believe, you know, Old Testament God was bad, you know, short-tempered. New Testament God is um, merciful and gracious. But God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then some people say, because what you see is God the Father in the Old Testament and God the Son in the New Testament. So you see the different dispositions. But that's, the Hebrews just wipes that completely off the, the books. There's no way you can be biblical and believe that. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus and his humanity was the exact imprint. What's it, how's it say it? The exact imprint of his nature. Of, the, of, of God the Father. So if God the Father were walking around as a person, he'd be just like Jesus Christ. He'd do the same things. He would, he would be just as caring, just as loving, um, just as wrathful at times over the same things that Jesus was, the exact imprint of his nature. So if you know, anybody that has a child that's just like you, even that child's not the exact imprint of your nature, but Jesus is. So this is good news. You don't have a father in heaven who's just 
trying to get to you. And Jesus just begging and imploring him, Father, just please. You know, you get this uh, as if it's a dysfunctional relationship, as if God the Father is some sort of a mean, uh, abusive father, and Jesus is up there just trying to chill him out, you know, trying to intercede for you. But that's, that's not the case. You have God the Father who is wanting to be perfectly loving and perfectly just, and justice is demanding that all the evil and wickedness is to be dealt with properly. And he knows that means hell for everybody. And so God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, planned before the foundations of the world in order to manifest greater things about himself and his love and his glory and his mercy and his wrath and his justice to be able to say, we need, we're going to save some of these people. How do we do that? And it's only in the cross of Christ. Only God can save us from God because God wants to. Not because Jesus is twisting his arm. They're all on the same page. It's just whenever you think about things that have to do with God, you have to keep that exact imprint of his nature. They're all on the same page with these things. They're all accomplishing the same purpose. And, so, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus Christ. Upholding the universe by the word of of his power. And then after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this is Jesus Christ, the exact imprint of his nature. Now, if you look at, and keep your place there in Hebrews, then we look at Romans chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans 8, verse 29. So remember, Jesus Christ exact imprint of the nature of God and in Romans 8:29 for those whom he foreknew this is believers the church those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers so as believers as the church we are we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of God's nature. So we are destined to be conformed to the image of God the Father. But the interesting thing is, you get to see how God the Father would be as a human. Because we see God the Son as a human. So it would be one thing to say, well, he's God, now can I be God? Well, Jesus became God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. We're conformed into the likeness of Jesus, the person... Jesus Christ, who's the exact imprint of the nature of God. So anything that we can say is true of Jesus and his nature should be true of us. So in theology, we have a thing called attributes of God. And the attributes of God are things like his holiness, his justice, his mercy, um, omniscience, omnipresence. All these things that we talk about are attributes of God. Words that we would use to describe the being and person of God. So there are, and just chill out a minute, this is a good theological information. We have communicable and incommunicable attributes. Okay, so if you have a communicable disease, you can give that to somebody. An incommunicable disease, you're not going to give that to anybody else. So attributes of God which can be communicated to us, and there are attributes of God that we, we, can't, we don't have access to. So, you know, omnipresence. No, we're not going to be omnipresent. Um, morally right. 
Yes, morality. That's something that we, we share in. So these sorts of things, and you can look that up, and there's books, and usually if you look at a systematic theology, communicable and incommunicable attributes of God or something that's studied, because we want to know we need to be, this is the, the, one of the things that God is doing with the believer is conforming us to the image of Christ, who's the exact imprint of God's nature. We're supposed to become like, like God. We're supposed to be God-like. Now, so when you think that, a lot of Christians, you know, there's a, a, a Charlie Daniels song. He, he passed away not too long ago here. It's got a, um, what's the name of that song? See, this is where I, I go off script. This is why Rick likes to write his stuff down. Um, Jesus walked on the water. What is it? Long hair country boy? Yeah. <laughs> um, Jesus walked on the water. Yes, I know that's true. But sometimes I think that preacher man like do a little walking too. You know, so, and I think it's not just that preacher man. It's all of us that would like to do a little walking too. We like to walk in the water. We like to be um, God-like. And so you have to think, all right, and we're being conformed to that image. God-likeness. So the world has an image of what God-likeness would be. And Jesus came and flipped it upside down. And so as believers, we're called to flip that upside down. Leadership. Servant leadership. I mean, it's upside down. You will not get to proper God-likeness in the flesh. It won't work. The, the disciples completely were frustrated with Jesus at many, many times because he was not acting God-like. <laughs> Judas, severely frustrated with Jesus. So what does it mean for us to be like God? You've got to look at Jesus. Now, Jesus is not just our example, okay? He is the one who went before us. He is the one who lived a perfect life in our place. He's our substitute. He's our mediator. He's the one in whom we, are, we rest. And so we're going to look at that too. But what I want us to look at first is Jesus as example. It's not wrong to see Jesus, Jesus as example because we're being conformed into his likeness. So if you want to be God-like, you've got to be Christ-like. You've got to be Jesus-like. You've got to be able to do the things Jesus did. And he washed the feet of sinners. He, he humbled himself. He was obedient even to the point of death. He had sinners that the scribes and the Pharisees who wanted to be God-like... And they wanted nothing to do with people who were really lower than them. And then Jesus came and said, there's nobody lower than me right now. Nobody in this room. I serve you because the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's a, it's a, it's a kingdom ethic. And so I want us to look in verse 26. And there are these attributes of Christ that makes him our high priest and then how are we supposed to be like this? And so the first one is holy. And I learned a little something. I know the word holy is hagias because it sounds like haagen ice cream. That's how I remember that. So hagias, hagiography is the study of the saints. And so that's the word for holiest, the word we get for saints. It's the word that we're called in the Bible. You're the, the hagias. And we are the holy ones, the saints. That's the word. Um, it comes from the, the Hebrew word kadosh, which... Kung Fu Panda, Kadoosh. I don't know why these things stick in my head, but Kadosh is translated Hagias. 
It's this holiness set apart for God's purposes, different. There's a purpose for you. You have been chosen and set apart, and you are different. It has a moral aspect to it too, but it's positional, and it has to do with who you are and who we are in the Lord. That's not this word. I didn't realize there are three different words for, for holy um, in Greek. And, and this second word here, the hagios is used all over the place. And this word hasios is different here. And it's um, used five times, eight times in New Testament and five times are quoting something from the Old Testament. So it means to be also to be set apart for, for a special purpose, but it has to do with this moral aspect. So when you see this word, hasios, it has more to do with, with morality. It is holy in the way that probably the world tends to think of the word holy. It's, it's, it's not used that often in Scripture. We think, well, somebody's holy. We think, oh, they're just, they're morally perfect. And that is what this word means. It's not what we usually mean by the word holy. It's a part of it, but it's not usually what's meant. But right here, he's saying morally perfect, undefiled by sin, as our high priest, Jesus is completely without sin and perfectly pure so that his offering of himself is sufficient once for all. So he is perfectly pure and holy. Can we be like that? We're called to be like Jesus who was perfectly moral, morally pure. We're called to be like that. So, since God is conforming us to the image of his Son, he is making us more and more morally upright, morally pure. Now, we're also told that um, as long as we're in the flesh, we're going to struggle with sin. But when we, are, when we die, uh, we'll see him as he is. And so then we'll have moral perfection and glorification. But it doesn't excuse us in this day for any type of sin that we commit because we're supposed to call one another... Um, we're supposed to bring, you know, confess your sins one to another. If you see your brother in sin, you bring it up to him in love. If he doesn't listen, you get a couple other Christians. You hold people accountable for their moral failures. And so if we're not supposed to be morally upright, we have no right to hold people accountable for these things. And we want to hold one another accountable because we don't see these things in ourselves. We tend to think of ourselves as, as you know, as an excuse even for the bad things we do. So you need somebody sometimes to be able to come you know, lovingly to be able to say, I'm not trying to make you be perfect, but in this particular case, I think we need to, we need to think about these things because we are called to be better people. And I think sometimes in the church, particular branches of the church, we can focus so much on grace and so we so absolutely reject legalism that um, we, we reject calls to being more morally upright. And you just think about that. It's just... It's, it's not right, <laughs> you know, and you can't become, it can turn into something negative. It can turn sinful. So even the best things we do can turn sinful. So we don't want to do that. That's why you need a church. You get a couple people together that want to start working on you. <laughs> oh, man, it could be evil and wicked, you know, but if you had a church around you, you know, they're like, wait a minute, you guys, you guys aren't dealing with it right either, you know, so as a body, we're supposed to be able to come together and and be able to, to lovingly help one another as Jesus and God the Father is conforming us to the image of his, of his Son. So God does that. He talks about disciplining us. And that means trying to help us to be more like Christ. When we're out of control, he'll discipline those he loves. Um, we need to be with him. If you've noticed, uh, the more you're around somebody, the more you can become like them. 
You know, if you just start, if you're around somebody a long time, if you live in a place that has a different accent than you, eventually you're going to develop that accent a little bit. I had a friend from Australia that lived in Manning, South Carolina, and couldn't understand a word he said. Well, it's a little bit of exaggeration, exaggeration, but he was asking for some moccas one time. And I was like, moccas? What is that? Sounds like some kind of weird food I don't want to eat. He said, moccas, moccas, like, you know, like you draw with. I said, markers? <laughs> He's like, yeah, moccas, moccas. I said, wow. He says, he says the bad thing is, I wish I could do an, an, an Australian accent. The bad thing is, mate, when I got home, which is probably English accent or something, nobody can understand me because I talk so much like a southerner. <laughs> I said, well, you don't. So, uh, but he did. He became more like us by living amongst us. And so um, that's what we should be is we're amongst God's people. I mean, we would hope that would mean you become more Christ-like um, as we are among God, amongst in the word, in prayer, that we become more Christ-like as we spend time with him. But the problem of only becoming more Christ-like by spending time with him is it's still you interpreting the word by yourself and you're still sinful nature and you can twist and you can turn that and you can um, have that, you know, go off in some bad directions. That's why you need a body around you to be able to say, I think you're being a little harsh. Or I think you need to, you know, be a little more strict. You know, whatever your error is, um, that we're not all just needling at each other, but we're all legitimately caring for each other in a way that we're trying to help each other. Legitimately trying to do that, not just like, I'm going to make sure that everybody in my church is behaving properly. Well, hopefully there's a bunch of people that will come around that guy and say, brother, you need to chill. You know? So what happens is, um, you either learn to be conformed to the image of Christ, or you leave and go to another church that doesn't know you that well yet. <laughs> so stuff like that happens. So we, or you find a church that's a jerk in the way that you are. I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, churches have characteristics. And so our church is a characteristic. Our church needs to be called to the mat about some things, I'm sure. So that's where we have to be willing to listen and be willing to go to the, to the word and acknowledging as somebody does call you to the mat to they realize that, one, they can be wrong, and, two, they need to be careful lest they, too, fall into sin. That's all biblical. But this is what we're supposed to do, applying the word of God so that the less we sin, the more like Jesus we become. But the more like Jesus we become, the less we sin. But sin is not really about rules. That's the law. And it just says here, the law didn't make anybody perfect. So it does have more to do with relationship. And that's necessary because being conformed to the image of Christ is about love and loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we have to see how far short we fall. But we are given the Holy Spirit, we're given the Word of God, and we're given the church. And Jesus says, be perfect, as my Heavenly Father is perfect. We're told to. Titus, chapter 2. So Titus is just, just, go, just turn a few pages and you'll see Titus. There's one page Philemon there, and then you see Titus. Titus, chapter 2, um, beginning in verse 11. So just, just listen to what God says to us about how we're to be, about how we're to behave in this world. All right, 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's amazing. The grace, it's the grace of God. It's not by works. Grace of God brought salvation. 
And when you see for all people, we know everybody's not saved. So what does he mean by all people? So this is a salvation. If anybody's going to be saved, it's going to be through the grace of God. And then what does that grace of God do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We're called to. Be honorable. Be excellent. I think Bill and Ted said that. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And I had to be careful with that because sometimes we see that as that means I go serve at the food pantry. That means I go build a house. That means I go, you know, do this or I go do that. And those things are all good things. But that's not the essence of what he's talking about. It's the, it's the result of the things he's talking about is inside your heart you should be wanting and doing good things. Good, help, helping people, helping one another. But you can get also get caught up into programs where what the church's purpose in the world is to do all these things. And it's like, well, the church's purpose is to share the gospel, to make disciples. And then the church's purpose is to be disciples, to follow Jesus Christ. So we had to make sure, first and foremost, we're sharing the gospel because without the gospel, you can't do these things. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He's writing this to Titus, who's going to be a leader in the church. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So submissiveness to rulers and authorities. That comes up a lot today, and you could say, well, if the government comes in and tells us you can't worship, let's just bring, leave pandemics out of it, and they just, you're in a country that doesn't like you. They're like, no, we're not. You can be the church, but what you have to do, well, just look, you can look these things up and know that we're true. Hitler's Germany. Um, they didn't like the Old Testament. Why not? It's Jewish. It's like, well, guess what, guys? New Testament's Jewish, too. Um, you had to put swastikas up. Um, you could preach approved sermons. Um, that was Bonhoeffer was a uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a pacifist. Did not want to fight um, at all for for any purpose or reason. And it began to see more and more how these were ungodly commands being given. You can't follow ungodly commands. Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority. People in authority under him. You have to. Our hearts tend to say. By disobeying you, I'm obeying God. So you've got to check that. You've got to make sure you're doing that in a community of believers, too. If you're oh, disobeying authority just individually, you have to be careful. Again, this is why community is important. But being able to say to ruling authorities, you're evil and you're commanding evil things, I will not do it. Like a, a hospital says, as a doctor, you must perform abortions. You, you don't have to say, well, that, that I was commanded to do it. We even look at the Nazi guards and, and the people who did terrible things, and they said, I only did it because I was commanded. I was following orders. You know, God forbid you ever think that you're following, that you're sinning because you're following orders. You will be held accountable for the things you do. So you have to be careful about this. However, the general attitude of the Christian, in general, is submissiveness to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak Evil of no one. I mean, there goes Twitter right there, you know. <laughs> I 
most of Facebook, you know, most of our personal emails, and a lot of our personal correspondence and conversations. So we have to be careful of that. Don't speak evil of anyone. Just sort of catch yourself. There's, I think in our speech, we need to try a couple things. One, truth. Don't lie. Second, don't speak evil of anyone. Avoid quarreling to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So that's the aim and the goal. So what do you do when there's a bunch of people that are protesting and they're coming to your house and they're destroying your house, your neighbor's house, they're killing people? You know, that's where the church has, I mean, thank Presbyterians for uh, living in a country that's free, for having the United States government is based on the Scottish Presbyterian form of government. Presbyterians were the first to stand up and say, there is a time to stand up to tyrannical government. Okay, so these things have to be thought through because there's lots of things in Scripture to say, you be careful because authority is there for a purpose. And then he gets to verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared... So you get this contrast between our raging and his love. But when the goodness and kindness of God appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So that's where the balance is. He just got through telling us to live godly lives. And then he tells us, you didn't get saved by living a godly life. You got saved while you were sinners. And now you're being brought into a different way of thinking, a different way of loving. Because he has, according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So there's a, a kingdom ethic. So being conformed to the likeness of Christ means we are to be holy. And the second attribute here um, in Hebrews is innocent. Now, what you're going to see is there are certain similarities between the words, but there's nuances, too. And this word innocent is, is um, has the, the Greek word has the word ah in front of it, which means non or un or not. Um, ah kakos, which means evil, so not evil. And the way they use the word akakos or akakos is um, not evil or guiltless. Um, one scholar says it's untouched by evil. So that's an interesting thing, but you be aware that Jesus was touched by, you know, evil was attacking him, but he was not touched by it himself. So this is what this means, is innocent, not evil. So we look at Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 12. Verse 9. We're not supposed to be evil. Now, everybody, I think, would agree to that. <laughs> yeah, don't be evil. But the, but the thing is, like, okay, completely good. So, verse, beginning of verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor so I, I love that verse, let love be genuine, because you're not just acting in loving ways. You actually should be loving. It's like there should be some sort of, 
emotional. Even loving your enemies has to come out of some emotional place. It doesn't mean loving and kissing them and hugging them and everything, but it's, it's got to come from some desire for their good, you know, that they'd be saved and rescued from, they don't know what they're doing, so even, you know, some sort of compassion. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. And we're going to get back to this in a minute. So we're going to stop there. But just, well, and never, let me finish it. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Just the idea of honor. Um, it's, it's really fallen by the wayside. We need to make sure that we, we try as Christians to be, to be honorable. If possible, um, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So that's difficult. It's difficult to know how you do that. But that's how we do it. Overcome evil with good. You don't overcome evil with more evil. You overcome evil with good. So you have to be able to discern. You have to be able to be matured to know what is right and what is good. And you have to be able to look at the world. You've got to look at stuff you might love. People, institutions that you might love and be a part of. And just think, I, this is, I've based a lot of my life, family, whatever. And it's like, it's not, it's not good. Somehow we need to be able to speak to that. And we need to, to abhor what is evil. But we have to overcome evil with good. So being conformed to the likeness of Christ, we're to be holy and we're to be innocent. We're to be good. And third, he has here, unstained. And so he had the Greek little prefix, ah, is there again, meaning not. And then it's a word, miantos, which means to be um, contaminated or defiled in some way. So unstained, uncontaminated, undefiled. The Old Testament priests had to have a, a they had to have physical perfection, and it wasn't a, like they had to be handsome. It's just they couldn't have physical defects. And this is speaking of an internal moral lack of defect, an internal moral perfection. And also it's this idea of, of Jesus actually walking through the world for 33 years. 33 years being attacked by demons, being attacked by the world, being attacked by his own disciples, being attacked by the government. I mean, it's just like, thing after this, in the midst. One of the things that really amazes me about Jesus is how do you walk perfectly? How, do you, how are you sinless in this world and it not just drive you crazy? 
And I think it's interesting because our inability to deal with sin. It, 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 we were in the mountains a couple weeks ago. And it's just like Jesus will go off to the mountains. Jesus will go off by himself. And it's like to get away from people. <laughs> I thought, okay. It's not un-Christ-like to want to get away from people. But he didn't want to get away from people because he was tired of them. He wanted to get away from people because they were distracting him from the Father because they wouldn't leave him alone. They were constantly, I mean, you know, you can heal people. You can do these things. You're in demand. And he had to get away. And just by himself with God the Father. So we need to make sure we're doing things like that too. And then we also notice, you know, it's a strange thing about vacations. It's like, it's just a week. I like, to, if I can, I like to take two weeks. It takes a week to get on vacation. And then when you get back, you're, you know, it, but you, you're back. It's not like you, you stop completely, I don't know. It's like, not like you take a year off and decide to start over again. You, you, it's just a break. And so we have to be aware. So how do you handle your breaks? And a lot of times, you know, if you're like my wife, you do more work <laughs> on vacation than you do, you know, because now you're feeding and caring for it. Depends on how many people go on vacation with you. You got to be careful of that and make sure that you're taking time. We probably need to take some sort of spiritual vacations, um, not a break from being spiritual, but a break to just, this is what Sunday's supposed to be, where you set apart this day to the Lord. So the worldly stuff is like, and just, when we did Taekwondo, one of the things you did for whatever reason, you'd always, you took your shoes off and you bowed before you walked on the floor. It wasn't like a worship thing. It was just, you mark that off from this. Nobody stepped on that floor with their shoes on. I mean, people did and they figured out, depending on who they were, whether you yelled at them or politely said something to them. But you, you mark that off. And that's why this, rightly or wrongly, the church started to call this room a sanctuary. Because it's supposed to be where we come together for a specific purpose to worship. And it's supposed to be marked off from the world. We don't take our shoes off. We don't bow. Some people got upset a long time ago because we're letting people bring coffee and stuff in here. And it's like because they saw it as a, you know, it had a reason for it. But, um, you know, the sanctuary is a different place because we're here. But we can meet wherever we want to. And that place can be a sanctuary. It means just a place of peace, a holy place. But it's the the church that makes the place like that, not, not the place. But we need, God has given us one day and seven to, to be set apart for, for spiritual purposes. And you have to be careful about making that a rule and a law, and then you can become an idolater of that kind of thing too. But we're not supposed to be stained by the world as we're walking, walking through this world. Titus um, 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. And he's referring to the ceremonial law and stuff like that. But he says... To the defiled, and that's this word here, to the defiled, to the stained. So Jesus is able to walk through this world and he didn't get none of this on him. He didn't get, he didn't get stained with sin because he's walking through it. But the, the people who that's all they are, they're just defiled and they are stained. They're unbelieving. Nothing is pure. So for a non-believer who's defiled, there's nothing that's pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So you've even, they, people have even defiled their consciences. So when you come to the Lord, all that gets changed. So what you have to be willing to do is you have to be able to say, all right, the world is defiled, they're unbelieving, and nothing is pure. I'm a believer now. All things are pure. Now, that doesn't mean you do sinful things. Again, it's talking about ceremonial clean, cleanness and uncleanness and this sort of thing. But 
you cannot have your mind and your conscience defiled. As a non-believer, your mind and your conscience defiled. As you come to the Lord, the Holy Spirit begins to work on that, your mind and your conscience. So you have to have your conscience conform to Scripture. You have to have your mind be renewed by the, the, you have to be renewed by the, what is it? To be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. It's through the Scripture, through the Word, through the sacraments, through um, the preaching of the Word, praying together, loving one another. Um, that's how we begin to work off not being stained going forward by the stuff we run into in the world. So the more we see negative things, sinful things going on in the world, we had to be able to walk amongst those without being stained by them ourselves. And that can be something that's difficult. So being conformed to the likeness of Christ, we're to be holy, we're to be innocent, we're to be unstained. Fourth, we're to be separated from sinners. Because Jesus was separated from sinners. Being holy, innocent, unstained will separate you from sinners. It will have you stand apart. It will also have them kind of stand apart from you. So then when you see people beginning to reject you because you won't do the same things that they want to do, um, it's a temptation to say, hey, I can do that. You know, I want, to be, I want to be liked and accepted too. It's a strong, powerful, psychological thing to desire people to want you and to want to be around you. And, and then when you have to take a stand and say, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I just, whatever you want to think about it, is a picture of um, the Major League Baseball players. They're all bowing the knee during the National Anthem. And one guy's just standing up. He said, I'm a Christian. I only bow my knee to Christ. Whether it's right or whether it's wrong, no comment. But so what I want to point out is that the guts it took to stand there. The guts to be the one guy. Now you say the same thing, Colin Kaepernick. The one guy on his knee. The guts it took. I'll give him that. But when you stand for right, there's another picture that comes to my mind. And it's, um, I, think, I don't know if it's Hitler that's speaking, but it's a, a, a gathering of some sort in Nazi Germany. And everybody's looking straight ahead. And this one guy is looking to the left. He's got like a, he's just like, no. And he's like, he's like this. Everybody else is just, I don't know, they have their hands up. But he's clearly not following the crowd. That one guy. It is hard to be that one guy. And we all think we'd be. And if that was true, then we'd all be a crowd. It is no way it works. Not when hard times hit. Being that one guy is most likely not who you're going to be. Jesus says, be that guy. Be that one guy. You need to make sure you're noticing it. And don't participate in it. And it's hard. But the word separated does not mean just to be socially distanced from Christians, from sinners. It's not just staying six feet back from sinners. It's actually divorcing yourselves from them, departing from them, to not have anything to do with them, not be joining them. Now, Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus healed sinners. But he did not participate in the sinful activities of sinners just so he could be around them. They tended to more gravitate toward him, and he didn't reject them. But it was, hard to, it was not hard to tell him apart from them in behavior. But how often do we look like the world, and it's hard for the world to tell us apart? And then finally, Jesus Christ is our high priest into whom, whose likeness were to be conformed was exalted above the heavens. I mean, it's no wonder. His person, he's the son of God. Perfection, obedience, and suffering. He offered himself a sacrifice for sins. He is exalted. So then what about us? We're being conformed to his likeness. Are we to be exalted? 
Because we want to be exalted. There's a lot of people that love to be exalted. There's some people who, in humility, can't stand the limelight, but they still somehow want to be exalted. So we all sort of have a bit of a, a desire for some sort of exaltation. Um, I was just thinking the song, we all want to be big, big stars, but we all got different reasons for that. So no, Jesus did not come to be exalted. He came to lift up sinners from the condemnation that they were under and thereby exalt his Father in heaven. Philippians 3, he humbled himself to give glory to God the Father, ultimately. And then the Father glorifies him and exalts him because of what he's done. And that's where the Romans 12, 16 we read earlier. Don't be haughty. And that word haughty means don't be self-exalted. Don't be all about you. Don't be prideful. But associate with the lowly. So, as long as we're talking about songs, I got friends in low places. Okay? You should. You should have friends in low places because you shouldn't feel like you're all better than them. You should be able to... A Christian should be able to gravitate fairly seamlessly in lots of different stratas of society. Especially in the lower parts. So that we're not haughty. But we associate with the lowly. James 4.10, humble yourselves. 1 Peter 5.6, humble yourself. Under the mighty hand of God. So that at the proper time, he will exalt you. You don't exalt yourself. That's what Satan did. Self-exaltation. Jesus did not come for self-exaltation. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Jesus says, because I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart. That was his attitude. The one who is exalted above the heavens. Lowly in heart. Take my yoke upon you. You'll find a rest for your souls. And so you would think this would be the easy one. Because we're not holy. We're not innocent. We are not unstained. We are not separated from sinners. So, humble... Yes, that one I can do, <laughs> because I'm not those. And yet, we can't even do that. Humility should be our default attitude. It should come naturally, but it requires us to think of others as more important than ourselves, and we're okay with that until they violate our rights. So why is humility so hard for so many of us? So let's close with the good news. One, by God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, he is working within us an eternal weight of glory through faith. God is at work in us. And Jesus Christ is always praying for us at the right hand of God the Father. So as we blow this terribly, there's something working within us, though. We keep striving for this holiness. We keep knowing God the Father's at work. The Holy Spirit's at work. We're going to take communion in a minute. It's God working in us. This activity we're involved in right now, God's at work in this. It might have gone a little too long. It might have bored you a little bit. But engage with God in the midst of what he's saying to us. Because secondly, God requires moral perfection. It is a requirement for heaven, moral perfection. And the good news is, he gives that to you. He treats you as if you're morally 
Perfect. Here's how. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So how do we become righteous? We're hidden in Jesus Christ through faith. Just like he became sin who didn't know sin, we become the righteousness of God who maybe don't even know what righteousness looks like sometimes. But we get credited with his action. God requires us to be innocent. Romans 3, 23 through 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that means you're declared righteous, innocent, by his grace as a gift. You don't earn that. Through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ, he purchased us from the cross with his blood. You're declared innocent. We're supposed to be innocent, and we get that, but hidden in Christ. We're to be unstained. If you look at Revelation 7, 13 through 17, it ends by saying, he says, who are these guys, we read it as the call to worship, who are these people in these white robes? He says, those are the guys that come out of tribulation. I think it's talking about the, the church time, this, this, this great tribulation. They've come out of it with their robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Unstained is how we will look in our white robes having been washed by the blood of Christ. Unstained. And we're to be separated from sinners. 1 Corinthians 6.11 You were washed, you were sanctified. That means set apart in Christ. And then exaltation. Christ is exalted over all things. Look what he's done for us. Look what he can do for you. But you have to trust. You have to follow. You have to confess Jesus as Lord. You have to, to trust him with your obedience. And that is hard. Because we think, if I'm obedient to Christ, it's going to mess my life up. I'd rather get my life in order, and then I'll start following him. And it's like, eh, he's going to always bring you back to that point. Because he wants you to learn to trust him. He wants you to know that that is love. So we're given these things. And then he tells us, be these things. Work it out. Your salvation, let's see some outworking of it. You believe these things? You're hidden in Christ? You're justified? You're sanctified? You're unstained? You have all these things? Then what are you doing? And you're going to heaven? What are you doing? Follow Christ. Humble yourself. Speak truth. Love one another. All of these things that when he's reading the Bible and it says that you're supposed to do. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Live self-controlled and upright godly lives in the present world. Purify yourself. Be zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort, rebuke with authority. All these things. Live a Christ-like life. And when you see how far short you fall, he says, this is my body, which is given for you. You do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And it's covenanted remembrance. So when Jesus sees the rainbow, I remember the covenant I made. He remembers, he forgot, and he's revisiting it. He's revisiting it. So what happens in this, you were baptized with water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the washing of regeneration, the promise of the Holy Spirit to cleanse us. And then he says, but you're walking in this world, and you need me, like you need food, like you need drink. And if you try to do this without me, apart from me, you can do nothing. But I give myself to you, but you must take, and you must eat. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for those who 
um, take this sacrament that it would be done by faith and we don't eat or drink judgment to ourselves but that we recognize the body that we have to love one another that this was this cup's not given individually it's given to the church and we partake together if there were any day could not partake for whatever reason Lord we pray that that, that would not happen again we pray that you would draw people to yourself through us. We'd preach the gospel. And then we'd see you know, great numbers returning. So help us, Lord, to go out and invite people to actually come into church. Help us to find a way to be able to, to, to get people to start visiting in and, and giving their lives to you and becoming a part of us. As we're becoming a part of one another. As we're becoming a part of you. So, Lord, we thank you. Help us to be holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and help us to exalt you in your name high above the heavenlies as we humble ourselves under your feet, taking up our cross and bearing with it and following you. And so we pray in Christ's name. Amen.